Father, Lord, I pray that as we hear your word, Lord, may your word be scattered unto our hearts and may our hearts be like fertile soil that when we receive the seeds of your gospel may be planted deep in us, Lord, that it would take root and that you would cause fruits of faith to grow. Oh God, we just want to pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see who you truly are. We thank you and Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> How many of you ever heard of the town of Zatisti in Serbia? Anyone? Okay. Neither have I. Uh, until I read about it actually this week. And it's, it's a relatively small village with several thousand people that has historically been known uh, for a lot of bad stuff. Um, and a, a local councilman, he said, for years, only negative reports have been coming from our town, whether it be our farm diseases, monstrous murders, floods, landslides, and they've all been coming from our village. And so to counteract this bad image that this village had, some people decided that back in 2007 that they would build a 10-foot bronze statue of a man that the, that the village could identify with, a man that represented uh, their history as a people who overcome difficult things um, and, and are hoping to rise to new heights. And this statue that they built was a statue of Rocky Balboa <laughs> in the middle of Serbia. <laughs> and as the man whose idea this was initially, they asked him, why Rocky Balboa? And he said, well, you know, honestly, after watching the movie, I felt as if Rocky has come from our village. He felt like he was one of us. He had to fight his way to win his place in society, and we like that. And so they erected this statue of a fictional character because they felt that it represented who they were and who they hoped to be. I mean, it was just a statue, but it revealed the aspirations and the affections of their hearts. And so this morning, I want to ask you, what do you aspire to be who, or hope to be? Or I, I think it's safe to say that all of us have kind of a general idea of the kind of life that we want or hope for. And I think the more in question, uh, important question is, what will motivate and drive us to get to where we want to be? And that is what we are going to talk about today and through the story of Naaman. And we're going to um, first talk about two powerful motivations and how they enslave us. And finally, we're going to talk about how Jesus gives us a new mo motivation that ultimately frees us. And so the first motivation I want to talk, of, talk to you about was success. Naaman, uh, if you look in the story, he's introduced to us as this great commander. Of a, of, the, of a very powerful army of Syria. And he's described as a great man, a man of valor. He is well regarded by the king, high favor, very, very well regarded by everyone. And basically, in other words, he is the kind of man that we all wish that we were. He's a person that maybe some of us would love to hate because there's, he's like the perfect guy. He had everything that we wish we had. Now, 
I think we all want to be successful to some degree. And, and success can look very different from person to person. I mean, some of us, we can call it the American dream, although I, I don't hear that as much. Uh, we hear the rags to riches story. Some of us, being successful means we want to be married and have kids. Or it could mean getting a thousand followers on Instagram. Or making it to a great college. Finding your dream job. And, you know, there is nothing wrong with excelling in everything that you do. But if being successful is your primary motivation, it firmly places your sense of worth and purpose on what you accomplish. And ultimately condemns you for your failures. You know, the pressure, therefore, then, is always on. You are either a winner or you're a loser. You're either a success or you're a failure. You're either ahead of the pack or you're behind it. You know, um, I'm a huge basketball fan. I love the NBA. The Lakers are my team. And i um, very spoiled, I know, although not recently, but um, <laughs> I remember last uh, spring, anytime the NBA Finals comes up, the, there's always debates that talk about who is the greatest NBA player historically. No matter how great the basketball players, no matter how skilled they are, someone always brings up, but how many championships did they win, right? And that would always be the kind of final argument. Are they a winner? Are they a champion? And this is kind of what happens with us as well. We judge ourselves on this same standard of if success is our primary motivation. It doesn't matter how we did it or what, the, the path that we went to. Are you a success? What are your accomplishments? And if this is your primary motivation, it also kind of changes the way that we view others as well. You know, if we're mainly driven for success, it makes us view everyone as a fellow competitor. We are constantly comparing ourselves with each other. It doesn't matter how much we have as long as we have more of it than our competition. Isn't that true? And in turn, then, it also makes us less compassionate um, because for those that are not doing that well, the poor, the downtrodden, we begin to assume that they're just probably simply lazy and not applying themselves because if I could do it, they can do it. And we become less empathetic and less gracious. We're quick to judge. And so if we are motivated by our success, we, are, we can never, never rest. There's always more that we can do. Try harder. Work, outwork our competition. Failure is never an option. Which leads me to my second motivation. The second motivation is fear. You know, some say that this motivation is actually more strong or more powerful than the first one that I talked about. Let's look back at the text with me. If you can turn with me to the text. And if you see in verse 1, at the very end of Naaman's glorious resume, what does it say? It says, after listing all these glorious things that he, he has done and has accomplished, it says, but he was a leper. Exactly. But he was a leper. You know, you could have your whole life planned out, have the perfect job, the perfect family, 
live in Hawaii, right? <laughs> um, perfect house, but with one single tragedy, it can feel like our whole life comes crashing down. And when we hear about these things, it does fill us with fear. We become afraid. What if this happens to us? What if there's nothing that we can do? And the what ifs continuously haunt us. Or how many of us are driven by our fear of failure or fear of what people will think about us? That if I fail, people will find out that I'm not as good as I portray myself to be. I'm not as skilled as I let on at my workplace. What if they find who I truly am? Will they reject me? Will they leave me? You know, one of my most stressful jobs I've ever had, and I've had a lot, was uh, when I worked at a golf store in, uh, when I was in college. And I was desperate. I needed a job. That golf store desperately needed workers. And so I interviewed there, and everything looked good. And um, one of the questions he asked me, like, towards the end of the interview, and it was going great, he said, do you golf? I said, I've never golfed in my entire life. <laughs> and he's like, oh, how is this going to work? I was like, I don't know. How is this going to work? But I was like, but I do take an acting class in, at UCLA. And so if you teach me, maybe I can kind of pull it off. And so uh, that's exactly what he did. He taught me the best golf ball, the best golf club, the best gloves. He told me at uh, the, the local course that was near our, our um, campus, he told me which holes to avoid, you know, um, and kind of going off that. And so that was the only thing I knew about golf. I didn't even know what I was saying. And so I recall, I remember people would always approach me and they go, what ball would you recommend? And they would, I'd be like, well, t- describe to me your game. They described, I have no idea what they're saying. <laughs> and I'd be saying, well, you know what? Based on what you said, the Titleist Pro V1 balls seem like the right fit. <laughs> Resilient cover, soft course, so very forgiving. It gives you great distance. <laughs> Again, I don't, know, I don't know what I was saying. And usually that was it. And they would move on. And they're like, wow, that was great. All right, give me one of those Pro V1 balls, you know. And same thing with the clubs, same thing with gloves, exact same. I only knew one product. I only knew one line. And I was hoping that they would not ask follow-up questions. (laughs) Why was it so stressful for me? Because I was a fraud. (laughs) I was a fake. I knew nothing about golf. And it was always hang around in the back of my mind out, and I'd, I'd always be so scared that I would be found out for the fraud that I was. But you know, talking on a more serious note, for some of us, a lot of us, we know the phrase, fake it till you make it. A lot of us are faking it still, and we're afraid that we're going to be found out. You know, experts say that millennials, uh, the, the millennial generation, are the most stressed out generation, according to the American Psychological Journal. Then do you know why? One big reason is because there are so many options to choose from, whether it be career, uh, dating, things to buy, etc., because of the internet, that there is this genuine fear that they will regret whatever they choose. And so there's a term for that. It's called FOMO. Some of us already know what that means, fear of missing out. What if I choose the wrong thing? Because there's so many other options out there. 
whether it be relationships, products, schools, jobs, etc. There's that fear. So fear, anxiety, and worry. If you look at the root of it, it's all driven by our need for control. It's our way of trying to cover all of our bases. We're always trying to protect ourselves, our loved ones, and our possessions the best that we can. And we do this because the world keeps telling us that no one will care for you more than yourself. And so it is up to you to protect what's yours. Fear, it also changes the way you view others as well. Fear, it prevents you from truly trusting people. It makes you deeply suspicious of everyone and their motives in the interest of protecting yourself. You don't want to get hurt. And so it makes us into these kind of commitment phobes. It's really hard for us to commit to anything. Or it makes us resent our loved ones when we can't control what they do. Like our kids, right? I have two kids too. Sometimes it drives me nuts that I can't control exactly what they do. But that is what happens. We're constantly worried over them, and, and, and it gets exhausting. And so fear, just like our pursuit for success, it, it, it never lets us rest. There's always more that can be done to prevent the worst from happening to us and our loved ones. This morning, let me ask you, is fear the biggest motivation that drives you? Going back to the story, Naaman, as we read on, he he was a very wealthy and powerful man. And and he probably tried everything to cure his leprosy. And, you know, back then, and and, um, Brandon did a great job of describing to the kids uh, about leprosy. Leprosy, it was a very serious disease during that time. I mean, it was not only painful physically, Um, But it also affected you socially because you were to be quarantined and sometimes kicked outside of the camp altogether and had to be there alone. And not only that, when you had leprosy, people interpreted it as the gods were against you. Or you must have done something bad, so God's punishing you for it. That's why you have leprosy. And so it was a physical, social, and spiritual nightmare of a disease. And so you can imagine the desperation that Naaman felt. He had to be healed. He needed to be healed. And so he heard from his wife's servant about a prophet and Samir, we read, that could help him. And so we read that Naaman, he approaches the king of Israel with a letter from the Syrian king and riches in tow to pay for this miracle. And what happens is the king of Israel, we read, is he, he, was, he panicked. And he was like, this is a trap. Because he knows that he's not able to heal Naaman. And they're probably going to use this as an excuse for Syria to attack them because he's not willing to help Naaman, their great commander. And so we hear that Elijah hears word about this incident and he tells the king of Israel, send him over my way and I will deal with him. And so we read that Naaman, he approaches the door of Elisha with great anticipation probably like this is the prophet that i came here for elisha might actually have what it takes to cure him from this disease and so the door opens 
But what happens? It's not Elisha. It's actually his messenger. And the messenger says to Naaman to go wash in the Jordan River seven times and he will be healed. Pray the door closed. Thank you for coming. (laughs) Naaman was furious. He was filled with rage. And he stomped away from Elisha's house. Why was Naaman so upset? Why was he so insulted? Surely, he was probably thinking, Elijah was not taking his disease seriously. Because if he was, the cure that he was recommending, it would not be that way. It was so underwhelming to Naaman. It was way too ordinary and way too easy for Naaman to believe that it'll actually work. I mean, first, it was too ordinary. I mean, Elisha doesn't even give him the courtesy to come out himself, he actually sends his messenger to deliver these instructions. And he, Naaman was probably thinking, do you not know who I am? How dare you send a messenger to read um, these instructions? And not only that, Naaman says in verse 11 that he was expecting this grand gesture in verse 11. You know, it says, it says to call upon the name of the Lord and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. No grand gesture, just instructions on me washing myself. This surely is not going to work. And not only that, Naaman also had a problem with the river. He was saying that they have far more clean, more pure rivers back in his hometown. And he wants him to wash in the dirty Jordan River. Are you kidding me? This is way too ordinary. There's no way it's going to work. And not only that, it was way too easy. You know, Naaman, when, when, when he heard about these instructions, washing yourself in the river seven times, that's it? That's all, you're gonna, that's all that I have to do? Anyone could do that. You know, Naaman, he probably would have been a lot more comfortable if he told, if Elisha's servant told him, okay, go out and, and do something heroic or do something amazing, and then you can earn this miracle. Naaman would have been far more comfortable doing that. But here... Just wash yourself seven times, that's it. This is way too easy. It is not going to work. And so as Naaman was stomping away, Naaman's servant rushed after him, and he convinces him to give it a shot. What did he have to lose? And so Naaman relents, and we read that he goes down into the Jordan and dips himself seven times in the Jordan River. And you know, it was as if each time that he was washing himself in the Jordan River, it was God's way of showing Naaman through the ordinariness of the miracle that even though you think and the world thinks that you're great, in God's eyes, no one is greater than the other. It's not how much we stack up against one another that defines who you are, but rather how God views you is what truly matters. Not only that, the easiness of the miracle, it it was pointing to God's power. God doesn't need to put on a grand display to to show uh, his uh, miracle-working power. Naaman had to simply receive God's grace, like it or not. There was nothing he could do to earn this miracle. And so we read, Naaman was healed. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. 
And notice Naaman's response in verse 15. It wasn't, wow, your, your God is great at healing, or your God is greater than our gods in Syria. No, that wasn't his response. His response was, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. There is no God in all of the earth but in Israel. You see, he went down into the river as a pagan, but he came up as a believer. What happened? See, Naaman's leprosy was healed, but his healing, it went deeper. God healed him of his real disease, the real problem that Naaman had, that being his sin. And if this was how Naaman was healed from his sin, what kind of miracle would it take for all of God's people to be healed from this disease? Unlike Elisha, who sent his messenger to, de- to deliver instructions for healing, God would send his one and only son, not only to tell us how to be healed, but to de- die so that we can be healed forever from this sin. And how did Jesus accomplish this? You know, we pursue a great life. Jesus had an extraordinary life, a perfect life. And he reached the highest level of success and deserved the highest reward. And yet he was willing to give it up so that we might have it. God now sees us as fully righteous and justified the way that he sees his son, Jesus. Secondly, we may fear suffering, but Jesus, he experienced it in the utmost form. He faced our deepest fears. He was tempted, mocked, attacked, struck, falsely accused, deserted by his beloved disciples, sentenced to die a criminal's death, and suffered the full wrath of God the Father, his Father. And he did this for us. And, you know, whenever I hear about this, I, I always remember what Charles Spurgeon said once when he said this, Jesus Christ was up on the cross, nailed, bleeding, suffering and looking down on the people that were betraying him, denying him, throwing curses at him, and in the greatest act of love in all of the universe, he stayed. He stayed. This is the good news. Naaman, he washed in the Jordan River to be healed of his leprosy, but we wash in Jesus' blood and are healed of our sin. Which leads me to my final point. Then this changes everything. Before, when we were motivated by our success or by our fears, now we are motivated by this truth. This good news, the gospel. And this changes how we view ourselves and others. And this is how I well, just want to end. How did this, the gospel, change the way we view ourselves? If you look with me, I'm not sure if you, if you ever actually ever read that portion after uh, Naaman being healed by his leprosy. But what happened was, Naaman, he asked Elisha for two mule loads of soil from Israel. Why did he ask for that? Well, because Naaman, he was a high-ranking official, right? He was the commander of the great 
uh, army of Syria. And it was part of his state duty to worship in the t- uh, temple of Rimen, a Syrian god, and bow down to him. And, and, and notice Naaman, once he, once he became a believer, he didn't quit his Christian, um, uh, uh, his secular job and find a nice Christian occupation. No, he chose to use his job as a vehicle to testify about who God is. Not his own greatness, but to testify about God's greatness, the one true God. And so each time that he was required to bow as a state official to this um, to the God of Rimen, he would sprinkle the soil from Israel. And so that every time that he would have to bow down, he would bow down on top of this soil as a way to show which God he was truly worshiping. Likewise, when we are saved, we are no longer trying to prove ourselves to others or, or live in fear of what, what we might lose. Both leave us with tired and anxious souls. But in Christ, we are given a new life, justified not by our works, but by the work that he did on the cross for us. We are significant because of him. We are worthy because of him. And you do not have to fear any longer because your salvation is secure. We can never undo what Christ has already done for us. And therefore, we can work hard. Therefore, we study hard. We obey God, not to prove anything or not to get anything, extra special thing from God, but as a joyful response on what God has already given to us in Christ Jesus. And secondly, this changes then the way we view others. How did Naaman hear about Elisha in the first place? It was from the Israeli servant girl, right? If there was one person in this whole world that would want the worst to happen to Naaman, it should be this girl. We read that she was torn away from her family from one of the raids that Naaman actually led. If there was one person that would want revenge, it would be her. If there was one person in this world that would want to see Naaman die, it would be her. And yet, she was the one that told Naaman how to be saved. Why? What's going on here? The only explanation is that she forgave him. She forgave him. You know, I remember this past um, year, the Coptic Christians in Egypt, they were attacked on Palm Sunday. Do you guys remember that with the bombs? And I, or immediately after that, the Muslim, um, this Muslim host of the number one watch talk show in Egypt he interviewed the widow of one of the victims that was uh, part of that bombing. And he, he, at, he was going along with this interview. It was washed all throughout Egypt. And the widow said, I'm telling the one who did this, may God forgive you. And we also forgive you. Believe me, we forgive you. You put my husband in a place I couldn't have dreamed of. And the host he couldn't respond for a whole 12 seconds, which is like an eternity on TV. And he finally uttered, how great is this forgiveness that you have? And with his voice cracking, he said, if it were my father, I could never say this, but this is their faith and religious conviction. We too were God's enemies. 
And yet through the greatest act of love, his son Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he forgave us. This scandalous grace was extended to you and to me. This is the gospel that we believe in. This is the God that we worship. This is the kind of love that God shows to us daily. We can forgive others no matter how undeserving they are because we know that our Father forgave us when we too were undeserving. And not only that, it also frees us to love and to serve other people simply because. Why? Because before we were trying to gain acceptance and gain approval, we were constantly using people to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Remember, they were our competition. But here, we can just love and serve people because we know that we are approved and justified by, by God. He already sent Jesus. Jesus already done the work for us. He has approved us. He has called us his own. We don't need the approval of others to validate us or to make us feel better about ourselves. Therefore, we're free to love. We're free to serve without expecting anything in return. Again, this morning, I want to ask you, what drives you? What motivates you? Is it success? Is it fear? Those things will leave your soul tired and anxious. But Jesus, he shows us another way, a way filled with freedom and joy. And he healed you. He rescued you and freed you forever from death and with and from our sins. And so this morning, let us rejoice together as one body and declare like Naaman once did, there is no other God in all of the earth. Let us pray. Dearly Father, Lord, thank you so much for reminding us this scandalous grace that you extended to us when you were willing to die on the cross for enemies, your enemies. Because you loved us. Oh God, I just want to pray that as Naaman was healed from his leprosy and he was given faith, Lord, may we be reminded that we too were healed from the ultimate disease, the disease of sin, Lord, and we have become renewed and and, and have been washed anew and clean and are called and adopted as your very own. Oh Lord, I pray that we would revel and take joy in this new reality. And may this um, reality be played on not only how we view ourselves, but the way that we view others. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time, um